Take your Bibles this morning, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. I want us to look this morning at the subject matter, the Christian at war. You know, this weekend, tomorrow, we remember those who are fallen, uh, who have fought for the country, but I want you and I to see this morning that we're all engaged in a, another kind of warfare. Paul says, beginning there in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we thank you for a passage like this that very honestly and forthrightly tells each of us the battle that we will face in a fallen world because we have an enemy. God, as we think about our military this weekend and appreciative of what they've done, Lord, help us as believers to understand that daily we are indeed engaged in a warfare. But God, we thank you that one of these days, Jesus is coming back for his bride. And we're going to be in that place where you're making all things new. But God, until then, help us to stand firm, to stand strong, to live for you, and to be a good testimony. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During World War II, the Battle of Normandy, which lasted from June 1944 to August of 1944, resulted in the Allied liberation of Western Europe from Nazi Germany's control. Codenamed Operation Overlord, the battle began on June 6, 1944, also known as D-Day, when some 156,000 American, British, and Canadian forces landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of the heavily fortified coast of France's Normandy region. 
The invasion was one of the largest amphibious military assaults in history and required extensive planning. Prior to D-Day, the Allies conducted a large-scale deception campaign designed to mislead the Germans about the intended invasion target. By late August 1944, all of northern France had been liberated and by the following spring, the Allies had defeated the Germans. The Normandy landings have been called the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. The Normandy invasion began to turn the tide against the Nazis. A significant psychological blow, it also prevented Hitler from sending troops from France to build up his eastern front against the advancing Soviets. The following spring, on May the 8th, 1945, the Allies formally accepted the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany. Hitler had committed suicide a week earlier on April the 30th. I love reading about World War II. It's one of my favorite subjects in American history to study. I think the best museum of all museums of all types that I've ever been to would have to be the new World War II Museum in New Orleans. Now folks, today we can read about war and we celebrate the courage and the lives of those who fought on our behalf some of the men and women right here in our congregation. And we celebrate what you did for us and what, and what you did for the country. We're grateful. But I want you to understand today that there is a war going on right now that you and I don't simply read about from a safe distance. We are actively engaged in this battle. It is the battle that Paul describes here in Ephesians chapter 6. Someone has taken the time to review the history of war and learned that out of the last 4,000 years, there have only been approximately 260 years that have been entirely free from war. War is such a common part of our experience here on a fallen planet. Many of us have a relative or a friend. We at least know somebody who has fought in a war. Maybe you have a loved one that was lost in a war. War is all too common. And I want you to see this morning that it is common for the Christian as well. You see, the Bible tells us that we face three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But by his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ has ultimately overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. You might say that we fight not for victory, but from victory, from Christ's victory. But this spiritual warfare still rages on and will never be beyond it this side of heaven. Now in the book of Ephesians, Paul has spoken about God's grand plan in Jesus Christ. 
And then he moved on to speak about God's grand plan in the church. And then finally, God's great plan in the lives of individual believers. We see in chapter 5, verse 1, that there is indeed a very high calling on our lives. Paul says there that you and I are to be imitators of God. But then Paul closes out this book by reminding us of how tough the Christian life is going to be. It's not going to be a life of peace in the world. As someone has said, we don't go out of the tranquility of our homes to a bake sale or a bazaar, but rather to a battlefield. God doesn't want you and I to think that it's going to be easy. It's going to be a constant battle. I love what Dr. Harry Reader said about this on one occasion. He talks about the main problem in the West with a soft Christianity is that we have a cruise ship mentality when we should have a battleship mentality. God wants us to be forewarned of our battle. He wants us to be equipped for it. That's what this passage is about. It gives us a recipe for hope and a recipe for victory. Because the same God who raised His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, that same power is at work in those who believe. We are not alone in this battle. Now this morning I want us to see three things. We're going to look at our exhortation and then we're going to look at our enemy and finally our equipment. And I'm going to have to go fast. All I'm going to do this morning in this passage is give an overview because if you remember about 15 years ago, I think we did like an eight-week series on this passage and we looked very extensively at each individual piece of the armor. Obviously, I can't go into that kind of detail detail today you're not my African audience who says keep going I want you to see first of all our exhortation. Our exhortation. Look again at verses 10 through 12. He says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places right off the bat here Paul gives us exhortations and you'll notice that in this exhortation it is really two exhortations in one they ride piggyback with one another and I'm going to specify them in in just a moment but the first thing that he says that you and I need to do is that we need to be strong in the Lord folks we need to be reminded that our strength is not in ourselves our strength is not in the flesh You may recall in John chapter 15 when Jesus was talking to his disciples about what would happen to them once he left and went back to the Father. He reminded them there in John 15 of three key relationships that they would always have to keep in mind. 
He said they would have to be mindful of their relationship with him, of their relationship to one another, and of their relationship to the world. He said the world is going to hate you. The servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me and persecuted me, they will likewise hate and persecute you. And so Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for what they would face. And he said, as you're facing that at the hands of the world, you need to be careful to love one another. And then he began chapter 15 and John by saying, you need to especially abide in me and let me abide in you. Ten times he told them in that passage that they needed to abide. He said, you're nothing without me and you can do nothing apart from me. Folks, we never outgrow our need for the Lord. Our strength constantly comes from the Lord. I think we would do well to remind ourselves of that. In the spiritual battle that we are engaged in, it is critical that we begin at this point. We are to be strong daily in the Lord. It's in the present tense. Being strong in the Lord is a daily need. Is there ever a day in your life that you do not need the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course not. We need Him daily. The time and attention you give daily through Bible reading, through prayer and meditating on the Word of God and hiding God's Word in your heart, folks, that is not a waste of time. That is where your strength comes from. That 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour in the morning that you sit before the Lord and you're in His Word and you're reading and studying His Word and you're praying and you're seeking the mind and the heart of the Lord before you ever go out and start your day. I want you to see, ladies and gentlemen, that that is a critical period of time in your life because from that time you're going to gain strength and wisdom from God to face whatever you face that day he emphasizes this strength from the Lord by saying not only strong in the Lord but he adds an exclamation point to it if you will he says and in the strength of his might and then his next exhortation remember I said it's a twofold exhortation His next exhortation related to this in verses 10 through 12 is that we need to be certain that we put on the full armor of God. Notice that he says full. The full armor of God. Now in a moment we're going to begin looking at some of the individual pieces of armor. But his emphasis here is that we need every single piece both the offensive as well as the defensive pieces. A Roman soldier would not have thought of going out to the battlefield without all of his equipment that Rome had provided for him. Now at the very end of this passage when Paul talks to them, says, would you pray for me? And he talks about being in chains. 
We need to remember that the book of Ephesians is one of the captivity epistles. It has been suggested that maybe Paul's inspiration for this passage right here was the fact that he was daily chained to Roman soldiers who would, who would do their shift and another Roman soldier would come on. And as Paul is chained to these soldiers, he's noticing all of the equipment that Rome has provided for its soldiers and God gives him inspiration to write about the armor that God provides for his children because we're soldiers of the cross. Secondly, I want us to look at our enemy. Our enemy, beginning at the, uh, in, in verse 11. At the end of verse 11, he says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now pick up in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, we need to be clear who our real enemy is. We need to understand him and his ways. Our enemy is Satan. John R.W. Stott writes, A thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. If we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We shall go out to the battle unarmed with no weapons but our own puny strength and we shall be quickly and ignominiously defeated. Some Christians think that they can grow past encounters with the devil. Somehow or another they can outgrow him. But the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself says otherwise. Here was Jesus, the perfect son of God, the perfect incarnate son of God. And he went out into the wilderness and he had to do battle with Satan. You'll never outgrow encounters with the devil this side of heaven. And Satan has a well-trained and wicked fighting force. They are the demonic powers here called principalities and powers. And so again, we need to understand our enemy. Let's think first of all about who Satan is. Now Paul doesn't attempt to give his readers a complete history of the devil. I assume that he assumed they knew about him from other places in the word of God. Now I realize that the presence of the devil, even the reality of the devil, is questioned by some people. Some people who even claim to be Christians in the church around the world. Most of the world today or much of the world today pictures the devil as a medieval character or mythical character, uh, two-horned, fork-tailed, a, a little impish uh, creature dressed in red flannel underwear. But I want you to know today that that is not the biblical picture. He's mentioned in seven Old Testament books. He is found in 19 New Testament books. He is referred to by every single New Testament writer. He's mentioned by the Lord Jesus 15 times. 
To deny the presence and the reality of Satan would be to deny the witness of the Word of God and also to deny the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now scholars have tried to find more about the origin of Satan. We believe there's a clue in Ezekiel 28. In Ezekiel 28, he says, Son of man, God says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now it appears at first that God is speaking of a man, but we see that the king of Tyre evidently is a type of Satan because he goes on to say, You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Folks, it's quite clear that Ezekiel can't simply be speaking of a mere man. He's described as being in the Garden of Eden, as being perfect in his creation, uh, of being a cherub that covers. Cherubim are described in the Bible as a very special class of angels. And he's described here as being very beautiful. People think of Satan being hideous in his appearance, but the Bible says otherwise. He's beautiful. Paul even said to the Corinthians that there are times that he disguises himself as an angel of light so that even the elect might be deceived. Isaiah 14 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. What did Satan say? He said, I will ascend into heaven. I'm going to take God's place. I'm going to exalt my throne above the stars of God. And I'm going to be like the most high. There are names of the devil that we see in Scripture that also tell us about his nature and character. You see, what I'm wanting to do, folks, is point out what the Bible says about him. Not simply what you might hear or read from other sources. What's the Bible say about him? The name Satan means adversary. The name devil refers to him being a slanderer. He's called the serpent, 
cunning, sneaky, sneaky. Jesus said he's a liar. He said in John 8, when he tells a lie, he's only speaking out of his nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. He's called the deceiver. He's crafty. He doesn't come to you and say, good morning, I'm the devil and I'm here to destroy you today. He's crafty and subtle. Dr. H.A. Ironside makes an interesting analogy on this. And I realize there's, there's a weakness oftentimes with analogies, but I, I think it's a good analogy. Ironside, in talking about the book of Joshua, what the men of Gideon did. You remember the men of Gideon? The Israelites were to go in and destroy all the people of the land and the, and the men of Gibeon knew that. And so they decided that they were going to disguise themselves and they were going to put on old ragged clothes and get old crusty bread that was moldy and they were going to come to the Israelites and claim that they were men from afar who needed to establish a covenant with the Israelites. Because again, all the surrounding neighbors the Israelites were to destroy. But they, they looked like they'd come from afar and so the men of Israel made the mistake of not seeking the Lord in this and they made a covenant with the men of Gibeon and they soon found out that they had been deceived because the Gibeonites were the next door neighbors Ironside said isn't that sort of the ploys that the devil does Ephesians 6.11 says he's a schemer. Your translation may say he, he has wiles or strategies or methods. It's the word from which we get our word, methods. He's methodical. He knows your weaknesses. It was also used of predator type animals that, that study their prey and sneak through the tall grass for example and move in for the kill under the cover of darkness. Implied here is the thought that he knows your weakness and he studies you and he tries to get a foothold in your life. And what he gets you with may not be what he gets me with. What he gets me with, what he tempts me with may not be what he tempts you with. He's got methods, schemes. And then Paul uses an interesting phrase. Put on the whole armor of God. He's methodical. He's a schemer. That you might be able to stand, listen to this, in the evil day. What may be suggested by that, that there are certain days that you might be more under satanic or demonic attack than at other times. Some days may be worse than others. And so you need to be prepared either way. Well, let's think about the activity that he is engaged in. Again, from the Bible. What does the Bible say the devil does? In Genesis 3, we see the devil accusing God before man. He came to Eve and he painted God out to be selfish and stingy and God had withheld something from that first couple that they really needed and if only they would partake of that tree, their eyes would be open and they would be like God. And so God, God had been gracious and bountiful and provided everything but that one tree. But Satan painted him out to be different, stingy. And then in Job 1, he accuses man before God. 
God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job a righteous man? And Satan says, well, it's no wonder he's righteous. Look at all you've done for him, this hedge you've put about him. And Satan goes on to accuse Job. And if God would allow him to do certain things, he would see that Job's not the righteous man that he thought. Thirdly, we see him influencing Cain to take the life of his brother Abel in Genesis 4. Today, what do we see? We see a tremendous disrespect and low value for human life. In John 10, Jesus said he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He tries to steal glory from God. He tries to steal your heart and attention away from God. He wants you dead to the things of God. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage and your home. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable that said he tries to steal the seed of the gospel. Remember the parable of the sower? The sower goes out to sow the seed. The first seed landed on the hard soil. We don't have to guess about the interpretation. Jesus told the interpretation. He, he described that that seed was, was the word of God. And Satan comes along and he snatches away that seed before it can take root. So he steals the seed of the gospel. Jesus went on in Matthew 13 to say that Satan sows tares among the wheat. Another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Jesus went on to describe the one who sowed the tares as being the evil one. So wherever God's people are and wherever God's people join together and they're expressing love to one another and worship to God, the devil will make sure that there are tares among the wheat. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, you may want to write that verse down, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, that Satan attempts to block the missionary efforts of the church. Paul said, therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said he blinds the mind of the unbeliever. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then in Ephesians 6, 11, uh, he points out that he combats and fights believers. And then we look at the churches in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and see what Satan does there. I'll mention just a couple. To the church at Ephesus, he got the church to fall out of love with Jesus. They were still orthodox in their doctrine. They were still active in all the stuff they had going on. But they just didn't love Jesus anymore. Could Satan be doing that in your heart and in your life? To the church at Pergamum. Satan got them going along with the ways of the world. To the church at Thyatira, Satan got them tolerating sin. There was all kinds of sin going on inside the church. And Satan simply got them ignoring it and looking the other way. Folks, what I'm saying is in the lives of believers, 
in the lives of unbelievers and the in the corporate life of the church Satan is very active he's our adversary he's our enemy and you'll notice from verse 12 the help that he has Paul refers to the principalities and powers the rulers of the darkness of this age spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places what's he speaking of there he's speaking of demons in the gospels we see Jesus encountering demons all the time in Mark chapter 5 there was a man who came out from the tombs and he had a legion of demons in him that Jesus drove out Satan has a demonic host. As writers point out, he's not like God. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. Those incommunicable attributes of God that belong to God and God alone, Satan doesn't possess those. He's got to have this fighting force. I like what Dr. Page said on one occasion. Dr. Page was pastor, First Baptist Church in Charlotte before he passed away of cancer. He said, you know, sometimes people, God's people in the church say that they're under satanic attack. He said, I don't want to ignore that or deny that. He said, but if you think you're under satanic attack, you're probably under demonic attack. Because again, Satan can't be everywhere and do everything. But folks, we need to understand our enemy. And then let's move on just quickly and look at our equipment. Beginning there in verse 14, Paul begins talking about our equipment and what is the very first thing that he mentions. He mentions the belt of truth. A Roman soldier had a large belt about his waist that supported him and then there would be holes and pegs in it. He could hang other items. As Paul looked at that belt supporting the soldier, he said, we are to put on the belt of truth. Again, the fact that this is first is no accident because God's truth in Christ is to be the very foundation of your life and of my life. Remember, Satan is a liar. John 8, we have God's truth. Satan tries to come against that. He's the father of lies. And so one of the biggest areas he attacks is this area of truth. We need to hold fast to God's truth. So how do we put on the belt of truth? There's no substitute here. We've got to spend time in God's Word. Folks, we've got to read the whole counsel of God. We've got to study the great doctrines of the Bible, the great characters of the Bible. Folks, we've got to read the Bible through and through. I think we do a great disservice to the Bible today how we read it. One morning we'll take a little verse here out of context in our devotions. Another morning a little verse over here out of context. And that's how we read our Bibles. Folks, it's a shame what we do to God's Word. We need to read books of the Bible from the beginning of them to the end to understand the whole message. And we need to read the different genres of the Bible. through all the full counsel of God to understand who God is and how he's treated his people in the past and how he operates in the world. You and I need to understand that. That's the belt of truth. If you are not spending regular, consistent time in the Word of God for yourself, you are neglecting the belt of truth. And you're setting yourself up to be vulnerable. 
John 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. I believe with all of my heart that a believer is not going to grow in his or her Christian life beyond their appetite for the word of God. You show me somebody's appetite for the word of God. And I believe I can tell you a great deal about their spiritual journey. No wonder in Jude 3, the Bible says we are to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 17, along with this belt of truth, Paul mentions the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I believe the emphasis there is on the offensive aspect of God's truth. Between the belt and the sword, you have both defensive aspects and offensive aspects of God's Word. The sword can be drawn from the belt to address very specific matters. I'll mention one more. The breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is the truth of God applied in a very practical way in your life. It's the truth lived out. Now let me mention something important here. Put on your thinking cap a minute. I don't want to confuse you. In Paul's letters, righteousness is used in two ways. First of all, it's used in the sense of justification. We are to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He died for us on the cross. He bore our sin that we might bear His righteousness, that we might be clothed in the righteousness of God. That's the first way Paul uses the righteousness of Christ. In the justification sense. But then secondly, he uses it in the moral sense. That we are to live out the gospel in our lives. As James says, we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Righteousness in the moral sense is truth applied. For example, God says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that truth applied How am I going to love my neighbor as myself? What am I going to do to display that? That's truth lived out. The cause of Christ has been hurt so bad around the world because oftentimes we don't live out the truth. We claim it, we don't live it out. I'll never forget something I shared with you uh, quite a while back. When Dr. James Kennedy came out with Evangelism Explosion, Evangelism Explosion was a 16-week course on how to know how to share your faith. Probably the Cadillac plan on helping Christians to be able to verbalize and share their faith. He was the pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Passed away probably about five years ago from a heart attack. He was a prolific writer. He was an apologist. He would defend the truth, defend the scripture. Uh, When he wrote Evangelism Explosion quite a number of years ago, in that first setting they included a survey and asked believers... If you do not share your faith, this was an anonymous survey. If you do not share your faith, why do you not share your faith? 
Now, they expected they would get answers back like, I don't share my faith because I'm afraid to. I'm afraid the reception I'll receive. Somebody might make fun of me. They might ask questions I can't answer. The typical things that you would expect people to say as reasons why they don't share their faith. But Kennedy was surprised to hear or to see from the survey the number one thing why Christians said they did not share their faith. They responded on the survey, I do not share my faith in Christ because of the life that I live. The life that I live. I'm not living it, and so I don't share it. Folks, we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We are to live out the God. We're to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, justified before God, and then we are to live out that righteousness. I wish I had time to continue with the others. I'll leave those with you. But I want to remind you this Memorial Day weekend, warfare is not something you and I simply remember this weekend from a distance. It is, warfare is something you and I are actively engaged in. The Christian life is often described as a battle. And I want you to understand if that's how you feel today, that is not an unusual experience for the people of God. Sometimes Christians will say, Pastor, what is wrong with me? I'm going through struggles. I'm going through battles in my life. There must be something wrong with me. No. That's the normal Christian experience. Because we're trying to live right side up in an upside down world. We're trying to live light in a dark world. We live in a fallen world. In fact, what is unusual about your life, if you don't ever experience any kind of warfare, if you don't have any battles, any trials of being a Christian, then you probably need to ask yourself if you're really even a Christian. And if you are, you must not really be living it. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all, not 90%, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's battles in the Christian life. It's to be expected. There's nothing wrong with you if you're encountering that. But you need to be ready to face it. You need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You need to know your enemy. You need to understand him. You need to know your weaknesses. You need to lean on the Lord. You need to be in the Bible and in prayer and getting other believers to pray with you. You need to put on the armor that God has given us. Tremendous need in the Christian life. Allow hardship in your Christian life to cause you to seek the Lord all the more. Let it be a reason that drives you to your knees all the more. Remember that you do have an enemy. Here was Simon Peter, a lead apostle. And Jesus said to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, and when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. See, it's not unusual. 
Simon Peter. Folks, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. But one of these days, Christ will come for his bride. And we're going to that place where he says he's making all things new. Amen? But until then, the Christian life is a battle. The Christian at war. Be ready. Be ready. Be strong.